wages initiated So every person has the basic Every worker compensated No more facing mass starvation Starting maximum wages Cause these bosses pay these wages Like a path of enslaved them Enslaved can make the payments Mansions and cars as plantations No more prisons No more visions of places Give them real rehabilitation Anyone who needs help In any given situation Say no prohibition Cause we pro-egalization Pro-bonal Pro the basics Pro-mandatory classes And pro-human relations Pro-mutual aid trade Pro-living with no borders And one pro-worker nation Pro-having dreams awakened Pro-seeing every person With clean water sanitation You pro that A pro-hatred battles raging Animal rights against self-gratification If you want to understand that line Understand it's your school Gave you no real education There's nothing's more important Than improving human relations Guaranteeing human rights Is in place With no more rich and poor situations We want jobs Food And homes for all We want jobs Food And homes for all We want jobs Food Medication, the more letting people die who can't afford a medical evaluation. The more having your home saved as you're saving to make medical payments. It's basic, basic. The more only treatment was hurt who can afford a situation. The more poor people fighting against privatization. It's not only the rich, but all get a college education. The more keeping people packed and ignorant ways we raised it. The more form for politicians blame the victim justification. The more first and third world nation relation exploitation. No more ignoring the poor's mental activation. No, no more unjust war taxation. Human needs on top, all else it falls on the bottom of the equation. I rap my revelations and raps rap with declarations. We want all torture ended with no hesitation. We want Bob Marley writes my verse. We want a world without bosses. Every worker has the same with these basics. We say we want jobs, food, homes for all. We want jobs, food, and homes for all. We want jobs, food, yeah, homes for all. We ain't never gonna stop, cause we always gonna call. No more acting like we living in a world of individuals. Living in this way has its limits very minimal. Very like minimal. a young sister or brother, we all depend on each other. The truth is human rights, love the truth, uncover the tree, hug put them in the facts, always facts. The best thing you can have in this world is compassion. Don't just talk, take action. It's not all about you, it's all about you and me. There's a you you need to see in the concept of community. You got a kid with flat tires. They take their car into a mechanic that you hired. And you see what trust is dying. Because of life's dependent on the shop's type of They can give her tires, it's not safe, it's a disgrace. Thinking life's about first and second. Place. When we all need to win in the game of life we place Then we blame competition to embrace cooperation Imagine everyone not rich joined in unification Working for a mutual elevation Which will be the best result of any human communication Till the end we're gonna call again like this for liberation We want jobs and food and homes for all We want jobs and food and homes for all We want jobs and food and homes for all We ain't never gonna stop cause we always gonna call We want jobs and food and homes for all We want jobs and food Cause we always gonna call more We just want our rights We just want our rights Cause there's nothing more important in the world than human rights Cause there's nothing more important in the world than human rights We just want our rights Cause there's nothing more important in the world than human rights We just want our rights Cause there's nothing more important in our world than human rights There's groups working to make it happen Working for human rights To find something wasted and that was the artist the truth that's spelled t-h-a truth 
with the track Human Rights, Jobs, Food, and Homes. Greetings and welcome to Howie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics, inspired by Bernie Sanders, Howie Hawkins, Angela Walker, progressive and radical activism, and the Green Party. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. You can follow on Twitter at Howie underscore 2020. You can find out more about Howie 2020 and Bernie 2020, the earlier episodes of this podcast, at Bernie-2020.com. There you'll find a link to send me a message. You'll also find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is the plan on Howie Hawkins' website at HowieHawkins.us for the Economic Bill of Rights. The Economic Bill of Rights will end poverty and economic despair. Inequality kills. The life expectancies of working-class Americans have been declining in recent years. The life expectancy gap between our richest and poorest counties have been increasing since 1980 and is now 21 years. After five decades of stagnant hourly wages, working-class people are dying from what are now called deaths of despair from suicide, alcohol and drug abuse, and behavior-related diseases among people whose long-term social and economic prospects are bleak. The Economic Bill of Rights is integral to our eco-socialist Green New Deal. The Economic Bill of Rights makes it the responsibility of the federal government to guarantee the following economic human rights. 1. A living wage job. 2. An income above poverty. 3. Affordable housing. 4. Comprehensive health care. 5. Lifelong free public education. 6. A secure retirement. The Fight for an Economic Bill of Rights President Franklin Roosevelt called upon Congress to enact an economic bill of rights in his last two State of the Union addresses in 1944 and 1945. Every Democratic president from Roosevelt to Obama had at least one two-year congressional term in office with Democratic majorities in both houses of Congress. But none of the economic rights Roosevelt proposed found their way into law not even during the Great Society years under President Johnson, when the Democrats had commanding majorities in both houses. Progressive Democrats did introduce legislation for full employment and national health insurance in 1945. These programs were planks in Democratic platforms for decades. But the job guarantee was killed when the Humphrey-Hawkins Full Employment Bill was adopted in neutered form under the Carter administration in 1978. National health insurance taken out of the Democratic platform with the Clinton nomination in 1992. The Civil Rights Movement revived Roosevelt's call for an economic bill of rights with the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. 
as Paul LeBlanc and Michael D. Yates recount in A Freedom Budget for All Americans. A. Philip Randolph, Bayard Rustin, Martin Luther King Jr., and the other organizers of the march believed that to secure civil rights for black people, the black freedom movement had to move, quote, from civil rights to human rights and build a multiracial movement with the power to secure economic rights for all. They were confronting a mounting white backlash to black civil rights led by Dixiecrat Democrats and Goldwater Republicans that was being mobilized by stoking fears among economically insecure white workers of competition from black workers. The 1963 march was followed up by the Freedom Budget of 1966, submitted to Congress to implement the program. But the war on poverty was being lost in Vietnam, prompting King to call for Poor People's Campaign of 1968 to occupy Washington with nonviolent resistance intent on forcing Congress to withdraw from Vietnam and enact the Economic Bill of Rights to end poverty. Economic Bill of Rights Amendment to the U.S. Constitution It is time to pick up the torch for an economic bill of rights and make it the law of the land. While all of these rights can be realized by federal legislation now, we favor a constitutional amendment establishing an economic bill of rights that will give citizens the legal standing to enforce these rights. Such a constitutional amendment could read, Section 1. All citizens shall have the rights to Useful work, earning at least enough to make basic needs. A minimum income sufficient to meet basic needs. Decent and affordable housing. Health care of equal high quality. A public education of equal high quality. And a retirement income sufficient to meet basic needs. Section 2. The Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Implementing the Economic Bill of Rights. Number 1. The Right to a Living Wage Job. We will enact a federal jobs program that creates a federal job guarantee to every American willing and able to work in public services and public works. If you cannot find a living wage job in the private sector, you go to the employment office, not the unemployment office, and get your living wage job. The program will be like the New Deal's Works Progress Administration, WPA, in the 1930s, but expanded to guarantee full employment. Like the WPA, most of the public works and public service jobs will be planned by local communities and funded 90% by the federal government and 10% by local governments to make sure the local jobs are productive and not boondoggles. Local governments will plan public works and public service projects that create a reservoir of jobs on the shelf ready to go when unemployment when unemployed people need work. Larger-scale infrastructure projects at the state and national level will also be part of the program. By paying a living wage for public jobs, wages in the private sector will rise to a living wage because the private sector will be forced to compete for workers by paying a living wage. 
by employing the unemployed during economic slowdowns. The job guarantee will be more powerful and targeted counter-cyclically. Counter-cyclical policy than generalized deficit spending. It will bring income directly to workers instead of hoping deficits will increase demand and investment that indirectly trickles down as jobs for the unemployed. The full employment program's cost can pay for itself over the entire course of the business cycle. The public workers will pay taxes. They will not need federal unemployment insurance, Medicaid, SNAP, and other public assistance. Some goods and services produced by public workers could be sold. Rutgers lawyer and economist Philip Harvey illustrated how a job guarantee could sustainably or fully cover its cost over the course of the 1977 to 1986 business cycle in securing the right to employment, social welfare policy, and the unemployed in the United States. Princeton University Press, 1989. In 2011, Harvey made an updated net cost estimate for living wage public jobs during the Great Recession, assuming no income from the program for the sale of goods and services. The net cost was $28.6 billion to create 1 million public jobs, which would also create an additional 0.4 million jobs due to the multiplier effect of the public jobs stimulus. Number two, the right to an income above poverty. We will end poverty by guaranteeing every person has an income above the poverty line. The income guarantee will be built into the federal progressive income tax structure. If your income is below poverty, the federal government will send you a monthly check to bring your income above the poverty line. If your income is above the poverty line, you will pay taxes on your income according to the progressively graduated income tax brackets. We will update the official poverty line to reflect a realistic income needed for self-sufficiency to pay for basic needs. Researchers find that 200% of the current poverty line is a more realistic poverty line. As the civil rights movement turned from civil rights to human rights in the 1960s to address widespread poverty, it added the demand for a guaranteed income to the Economic Bill of Rights that President Roosevelt had proposed. The income guarantee was part of the 1966 Freedom Budget proposed to Congress and the Economic Bill of Rights demanded by 1968 Poor People's Campaign. We do not accept the common belief that poverty is intractable or a difficult problem to solve. Poor people simply need more money. They are poor because they don't have enough money. Most poor people are in households with hard-working, low-wage workers. A guaranteed income above the poverty line would end poverty. As Martin Luther King Jr. explained in his last book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? Quote, I'm now convinced that the simplest approach will prove to be the most effective. The solution to poverty is to abolish it directly by a now widely discussed measure, the guaranteed income. The time has come for us to civilize ourselves by the total direct and immediate abolition of poverty. For the minority of people who are poor in part because they have mental, emotional, or addiction problems, appropriate social services to help them 
should be provided. Not everyone is able to work or should work. Many are too young, too sick, or too old. Others are members of families and households who take care of the young, sick, and old. The income guarantee will ensure that household caregivers are not poor. The income guarantee will also enable people, usually women, the freedom to leave abusive relationships without severe economic consequences. The income guarantee will enact, we will enact, is often called the negative income tax, NIT. We prefer it to the universal basic income because it targets the benefits to those who need it, provides a sufficient benefit to end poverty, and costs a fraction of a UBI. The UBI popularized by Andrew Yang in the 2020 presidential primary campaign would pay to every person, rich as well as poor, $1,000 a month, which is about the current poverty line for a single adult. It would cost $3.8 trillion a year, which would be about a fifth of the nation's GDP and four-fifths of its current federal revenues. A model with high-end cost assumptions for a household-based NIT income guarantee set at 200% of the current U.S. poverty line would cost about $500 billion a year. With the provision of other public goods and services like Medicare for All and universal child care and pre-K, a realistic poverty line based on a basic needs self-sufficiency budget would be lower and the cost of the income guarantee reduced by the corresponding amount. Number three, the right to affordable housing. Public housing and universal rent control is how we provide affordable housing for all who need it within a decade. We will build 25 million new units of public housing in a 10-year, $2.5 trillion public housing program that is part of our eco-socialist Green New Deal. 40% of the units, 10 million units, will be set aside for low-income people seeking affordable housing. This set-aside will more than cover the current shortage of 7.8 million units of affordable housing for low-income and homeless households and individuals. These public housing developments will be high-quality, humanly scaled, and designed to be energy-efficient and powered, heated, and cooled by clean energy. The public housing will be mixed-income open to affluent and middle-income people, as well as low-income people, thus reducing the race and class segregation that prior public housing development in the U.S. made worse. The mixed-income nature of these developments, with rents scaled to income, will make the projects more financially self-reliant. The public housing construction will be coordinated with transportation planning for pedestrians, bicycles, and mass transit to create walkable communities. This housing program will be a jobs program, a clean energy program, desegregation program, and a walkable communities program, as well as an affordable housing program. It is much less costly for government to directly build public housing units than to subsidize private developers to build affordable units with tax breaks and grants. The latter approach has been the dominant housing policy since the 1970s, and the housing affordability crisis has only increased under this policy. Relying on the private market to provide sufficient affordable housing has never worked 
because more profits are to be found in upscale housing than in housing for working-class people. The United States has 139.6 million housing units, of which 43.3 million are renter-occupied. With only 1.1 million units, public housing accounts for only 0.8% of all housing units and 2.5% of renter-occupied units. By building 25 million new units, public housing will account for about one-third of rental units, which is more typical of many European countries, where public housing is more than 20% and as much as 60% of housing units in Vienna, Austria. By operating to provide housing at cost rather than profit maximization, this larger public housing sector will force the private sector to moderate rents in order to compete for tenants. While affordable public housing units are being built, we need to protect tenants now from being displaced from their homes and communities, and perhaps rendered homeless by rising rents. Rents are rising much faster than incomes and the cost of living in cities and towns across the nation. We will therefore enact a federal program of universal rent control that will cap rent increases each year and end evictions without a just cause so that people can stay in their homes. The federal government instituted federal rent control during World War II when economic resources were devoted to the war effort and away from housing development, creating a tight housing market. We should do the same now to protect tenants in today's tight housing markets. Number four, the right to comprehensive health care. We will enact Medicare for All as a community-controlled national health service. The National Health Service will provide comprehensive health care for all residents of the United States at no cost to patients at the point of health care delivery and free choice of doctors for patients. It will cover all medically necessary services, including doctor, hospital, preventive, long-term care, mental health, reproductive health care, dental, vision, prescription drug, and medical supply costs. In the first year, it will be a national health insurance program where a single public agency, Medicare, pays health care providers for all medically necessary services they deliver. Over the next 10 years, we will build out a national health service so that will socialize the delivery as well as the payment of health care services. Hospitals, clinics, and drugs and medical supply companies will become publicly owned. Doctors, nurses, and other health care workers will become salaried public employees. The system will be democratically managed by locally elected health boards that federate at state and national level for overall planning and coordination. Paying healthcare providers salaries instead of fees for service will help control costs. It will end the practice of running more patients through faster and giving them unneeded tests and treatments in order to maximize income. The National Health Service will increase the number of salaried doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers so they can focus on patient care instead of income maximization. Democratic community control will enable underserved communities to get an equitable allocation of health care resources and end the wasteful practice of hospitals competing for customers by duplicating more expensive medical equipment than a health care district needs, while many neighborhoods are lacking in community doctors and clinics.
The National Health Service will be funded by progressive taxes. 95% of taxpayers will pay less in those taxes than they pay now in taxes for public health programs like Medicare, Medicaid, and the VA, plus insurance company premiums, co-pays, and deductibles, plus other out-of-pocket payments for tests, treatments, and drugs not covered by their private insurance plans. Number five, the right to lifelong free public education. We will enact federal policies and programs to ensure that every person has equal access to high-quality, lifelong, tuition-free public education, from pre-K through university, technical and continuing adult education. Each of us should be able to get go to school as far as our interests and abilities take us. We will... And all federal support for the privatization of public education through voucher systems and privately managed charter schools. Defend elected school boards and oppose their replacement by mayoral or state control. And all federal support for high-stakes testing and support teachers and parents in local school districts to provide their students with a well-rounded education. Oppose educational tracking that reproduces existing race and class inequalities and limits students' learning opportunities. All students should have access to both academic and vocational learning throughout their education. Establish federal financing of all public education paid for by progressive federal income and wealth taxes instead of unequally distributed and regressive local property taxes. Enact federal legislation and funding to reduce the student-teacher ratios to 15 to 1 in all public schools. Enact federal legislation and funding to extend public school for pre-K children starting at age 3 on a voluntary basis. Enact federal legislation and funding to establish tuition-free public university and technical education of all kinds for everyone who wants it. Enact federal legislation and funding so everyone 18 years or over can receive a minimum livable income for four years of attendance at post-secondary education institution, like the post-World War II GI Bill of Rights provided to veterans. Relieve student debt by enacting a federal student loan program that will provide relief from existing student loan debts and provide affordable zero-interest loans going forward fully fund and staff the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights. Take affirmative action to end racial discrimination and segregation in school systems, including federal legislation requiring the redrawing of school district lines that now serve as lines of race and class segregation in order to create racially and economically integrated schools. Fully fund historically black colleges and universities, minority-serving institutions, and tribal colleges and universities. Strengthen and increase funding for the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act to ensure that students with disabilities and special needs have equal access to a high-quality education. Tie federal public school funding to an increase in teacher pay to a starting salary of no less than $60,000 tied to cost of living, years of service, and other qualifications. 
Invest in school infrastructure to repair, construct, and upgrade public schools for health and safety. Disabled access. Heating, cooling, and lighting conducive to learning. And up-to-date technology, including high-speed internet. Fund community schools, particularly in low-income communities, that provide education, health, and social services to students and their families, including healthy meals, preventive health care, dental care, vision care, mental health care, English as a second language, and adult education, and after-school and summer education, and recreation programs. The Right to a Secure Retirement We will double Social Security so every person of retirement age has a livable income. The Social Security system will become a true national retirement system. Social Security benefits only replace about a third of a retiree's average final wage, which is not enough to live on when it is your primary and perhaps your only source of retirement income. Doubling Social Security benefits could be paid for by lifting the ceiling on Social Security taxes for high-income earners, ending the deduction for business pension expenses, eliminating the home mortgage deduction, and closing tax loopholes for the rich. A more progressive way to finance increased Social Security benefits would be through more progressive income and wealth taxes instead of relying on regressive payroll taxes. Retirement is in crisis today because baby boomers have faced stagnant real wages for five decades, their entire working lives. Meanwhile, the cost of housing, health care, and college have increased far faster than the rate of inflation. Many baby boomers have spent their incomes raising their families and now face a retirement of poverty. Other sources of retirement income have been reduced. Defined benefit pensions have been steadily replaced by employers with defined contribution plans, most often 401k plans. To the extent workers have been able to contribute to defined contribution plans, their retirement assets and income are subject to financial market ups and downs, which can be a big problem if the markets are down when you are retired. Meanwhile, many of the defined benefit pensions that remained have gone bankrupt or cut benefits. A law voted through in the dead of night with bipartisan support in 2014 called the Multi-Employer Pension Reform Act, removed the protection of earned benefits that had been previously guaranteed by the 1974 Employee Retirement Income Security Act. More than 1.5 million workers and retirees in multi-employer pension plans have had their pensions cut as a result. Howie Hawkins is one of them. His Teamsters pension was cut by 19%. We will sign an executive order to impose a moratorium on future pension cuts and reverse the cuts to retirement benefits that have already been made. We will fight to enact the Keep Our Pensions Promises Act, first introduced by Senator Bernie Sanders in 2015, to prevent the pensions of up to 10 million workers and retirees in distressed multi-employer pension plans from being cut. This Pension Reform Act will make troubled multi-employer plans solvent by closing two tax loopholes for very wealthy people. 
and that is the Hawkins Walker economic bill of rights. You can see all of Howie Hawkins plans at HowieHawkins.us. Next up is a portion of a piece published by ProPublica at ProPublica.org. This is just the lead section of a very lengthy and detailed piece about the robber barons stripping money from hospitals and other medical facilities and practices. This is written by Peter Elkind with Doris Burke. In the decades since Leonard Green and Partners, a private equity firm based in Los Angeles, bought control of a hospital company named Prospect Medical Holdings for $205 million, the owners have done handsomely. Leonard Green extracted $400 million in dividends and fees for itself and investors in its fund, not from profits, but by loading up the company with debt. Prospect CEO Sam Lee, who owns about 20% of the chain, made $128 million while expanding the company from five hospitals in California to 17 across the country. A second executive with an ownership stake took home $94 million. The deal hasn't worked out quite as well for Prospect's patients, many of whom have low incomes. The company says it receives 80% of its revenues from Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements. At the company's flagship Los Angeles hospital, Persistent elevator breakdowns sometimes require emergency room nurses to wheel patients on gurneys across a public street as a security guard attempts to halt traffic. Paramedics for Prospects Hospital near Philadelphia told ProPublica that they've repeatedly gone to fuel up their ambulances only to come away empty at the pump. Their hospital-supplied gas cards were rejected because Prospect hadn't paid its bill. A similar, a similar penury afflicts medical supplies. Quote, Say we need 4 by 4 sponges dressing for a patient, IV fluids, said Leslie Haygood, a veteran registered nurse at one of Prospect's Pennsylvania hospitals. We might not have it on the shelf because it's on credit hold because they haven't paid their creditors. In March, Prospect's New Jersey hospital made national headlines as the chief workplace of the first U.S. emergency room doctor to die of COVID-19. Before his death, the physician told a friend he'd become sick after being forced to reuse a single mask for four days. At a Prospect Hospital in Rhode Island, a locked ward for elderly psychiatric patients had to be evacuated and sanitized after poor infection control spread COVID-19 to 19 of its 21 residents. Six of them died. The virus sickened a half dozen members of the hospital's housekeeping staff, which had been given limited personal protective equipment. The head of the department died. The litany goes on. Various prospect facilities in California have had bedbugs in patient rooms, rampant water leaks from the ceilings, and what one hospital manager acknowledged to a state inspector, quote, looks like feces on the wall. 
A company consultant in one of its Rhode Island hospitals discovered dirty, corroded, and cracked surgical instruments in the operating room. These aren't mere anecdotes or anomalies. All but one of Prospect's hospitals rank below average in the federal government's annual quality of care assessments, with just one or two stars out of five, placing them in the bottom 17% of all U.S. hospitals. The concerns are dire enough that on 14 occasions since 2010, Prospect facilities have been deemed by government inspectors to pose immediate jeopardy to their patients, a situation the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services defines as having caused or is likely to cause, quote, serious injury, harm, impairment, or death. Prospect has a long history of breaking its word. It has closed hospitals it promised to preserve, failed to keep contractual commitments to invest millions in its facilities, and paid its owners nine-figure dividends after saying it wouldn't. Three lawsuits assert that Prospect committed Medicare fraud at one of its facilities. And ProPublica has learned of a multi-year scheme at a key Prospect operation that resulted in millions of dollars in improper claims being submitted to the government. Leonard Green and Prospect, which have operated hand-in-glove throughout this period, both declined requests for interviews. Leonard Green and Prospect responded to ProPublica's questions in written statements through Citric & Company, a crisis PR firm jointly retained on their behalf. They maintain that they've kept their commitments, abided by the law, provided good patient care, and invested hundreds of millions of dollars, saving many failing hospitals and preserving thousands of jobs. Quote, Prospect Medical Holdings is a healthcare system that provides compassionate, accessible, quality healthcare and physician services, the statement asserted. The question of whether profits and good medical care can coexist is not a new one in the United States, but that tension is particularly acute in the case of Leonard Green and Prospect, where private equity has extracted hefty profits from a business that acquires struggling hospitals and relies on Medicaid and other government programs to pay the bills for its impoverished patients. Quote, It's such a brutal case of unabashed greed, said Rosemary Batt, a professor at Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations, who has studied private equity's involvement in health care. We're talking here about safety net hospitals that are serving the poor, the unemployed, disproportionately, people of color. They're just doing this immoral sucking out of resources. That is beyond the pale. Prospect's story is also a bleak omen for the future of America's healthcare system, and a particularly telling one, because the company is effectively on its second tour through the private equity system. The business model for private equity firms like Leonard Green involves stripping cash out of the organization, loading down operations with debt, and reducing every conceivable expense. After that is accomplished, firms then usually resell the operation to another buyer within five years. The saga of Leonard Green and Prospect embodies a broader trend. Starting around 2010, giant private equity firms like Cerberus Capital Management and Apollo Global Management 
rushed into the hospital business, buying up facilities and assembling chains. Their moves intensified a shift to for-profit ownership among the nation's 5,200 general hospitals from about 15% for-profit in 2000 to 25% for-profit in 2018, the most recent year for which data is available. The biggest corporations still own more hospitals than private equity firms. HCA, for example, owns about 180. Apollo claims 89. And Cerberus had 37 at its peak before selling this year. Almost as quickly as it rose, private equity firms' ardor for hospitals has, quote, substantially cooled in the past few years, said Lisa Phillips, editor of Healthcare M and a.com which tracks private equity healthcare deals i've seen the home, whole m&a market for hospitals dry up making quick profits from operating hospitals proved daunting quote there's so many other places to put their money in healthcare that they can flip faster phillips said the firms have lately turned their sites to outpatient clinics or staffing emergency rooms Private equity really wants to see growth fast and get out, Phillips said. They've squeezed it as dry as they can. Those actions have made it hard for the firms to sell hospitals, according to Eileen Applebaum, senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, who studies private equity. They're loaded with debt and anybody sensible is not prepared to buy them. Indeed, Leonard Green is now on its third attempt to sell Prospect. Other firms facing growing losses have placed some hospitals into bankruptcy and closed others, offering up their real estate while seeking to sell the rest of their medical operations at bargain basement prices. The exodus isn't necessarily good news, according to BAT and other experts. As they see it, this is merely the latest stage in a slow descent to the bottom. Given the cash and assets that private equity owners have already taken out of hospitals, their new owners will be left with heavy debt and limited resources. As the saga of Leonard Green and Prospect demonstrates, faced with that financial plight, these hospitals will be compelled to cut costs even further, making it ever harder to deliver quality care. And that is only the beginning portion of this article. There's a, a lot more information in here about uh, Leonard Green and Partners and Prospect Medical Holdings um, if you want to check out more of that story. Here's a piece written by Caitlin Johnstone. This is published at medium.com. On vote shaming, 21 ways supporting the U.S. establishment is worse than voting third party. The vote shaming engines have predictably kicked into high gear in America as the presidential election approaches, with shit-lib pundits like Bill Maher doing their part to paint third party voters as the most toxic people in the world. Which is, of course, ridiculous. I have no strong opinions about how Americans should vote in November, but it's obvious that in terms of toxicity, third-party voters are not on the list of people who are worthy of criticism. 
the dire situation humanity now finds itself in under the leadership of the U.S. hegemon is not the fault of a small fringe faction which doesn't want to support oligarch-coddling, ecocidal warmongers. It's the fault of those who help preserve America's oligarchical, ecocidal, warmongering status quo. Contrary to the stock template lines that establishment spinmeisters are regurgitating to bully the left into submission, here are 21 things which are in fact a lot more crazy, selfish, stupid, and privileged than voting third party. Number one, supporting a two-headed one-party system in the most powerful government on earth, which has plagued our planet with endless war and ecocide and marched humanity to the brink of extinction. 2. Continuing to support a political system which is wholly owned and operated by the wealthy, leaving zero effective influence over U.S. policy in the hands of ordinary Americans, and immense influence in the hands of the very rich. 3. Continuing to support a system which consistently deceives the American people into consenting to oppressive neoliberal exploitation at home and bloodthirsty neoconservative warmongering abroad, both of which always hurt the most impoverished and disadvantaged groups the worst. 4. Continuing to support a two-headed one-party system where one head always pushes as far to the right as possible when in power and the other head never moves things back leftward, even one iota, when it is. 5. Continuing to support a political establishment which rehabilitates war criminals, like George W. Bush, Bill Kristol, David Froome, and John Bolton, while demonizing anyone who refused to vote for a warmonger. 6. Supporting a political party which has been consistently attacking Donald Trump from the right on foreign policy, pushing him to escalate Cold War tensions with Russia further and further, and shrieking hysterically if he makes the slightest move towards de-escalation anywhere. 7. Supporting a political party which is designed to co-opt all leftward populism and railroad it into support for an establishment which promotes war and oligarchy while depriving Americans of the same social safety nets afforded to everyone in every other major country on earth. 8. Supporting a party which claims to support press freedoms while cheerleading Trump's extradition of Julian Assange, a move which, if successful, will cripple press freedoms around the globe and make it impossible to hold the world's most powerful government to account. 9. Supporting a political party which has, sent, which has spent Trump's term galvanizing its base around the psychopathic CIA and J. Edgar Hoover's minority-oppressing, left-punching FBI, while doing everything it can to stamp out any leftist zeitgeist within its ranks. 10. Continuing to support a mass media structure which works every day to deceive Americans into supporting their own impoverishment, 
while weapons of war are spread across the planet at massive expense. 11. Supporting a political establishment which promises slow, incremental change and actually delivers no change whatsoever, while our species slides off the cliff of extinction, taking out the most impoverished and marginalized first. 12. Pretending foreign policy just doesn't exist, or if it does exist, pretending Joe Biden isn't a lifelong warmonger who has spent his entire campaign attacking Trump for being insufficiently hawkish in most spheres of international conflict. 13. Ignoring the fact that both parties are working in support of world-threatening Cold War escalations against both Russia and China, a multi-front campaign whose complexity increases the probability of something going cataclysmically wrong, even more than the last Cold War. 14. Pretending a party that's done exactly nothing for America's disempowered communities isn't directly responsible for the poverty, police brutality, mass incarceration, exploitation, and oppression those communities face today. 15. Pretending a return to how things were before the Trump's presidency wouldn't just be a return to the conditions which created Trump's presidency. 16. Pretending Obama, who destroyed Libya, devastated Syria, facilitated the rape of Yemen, intervened in Ukraine, maintained and expanded all of Bush's most depraved policies, and did nothing for the people who elected him, was a good president. 17. Continuing to support a political system where everything keeps getting worse no matter which oligarchic puppet Americans elect. 18. Putting your head in the sand and pretending everything will be fine once a Democrat is in charge. Again. 19. Supporting a novelty joke party with fake primaries which are always rigged to ensure victory for the safest oligarchic puppet instead of pushing for something resembling actual democracy. 20. Promoting the lie that if you just keep doing something that has never, ever worked, this time, it might produce different results. And 21. Lulling people back to sleep when the only thing that can help ordinary people is for them to start waking up and using the power of their numbers to force drastic, revolutionary change. It's easy to advocate incrementalism when you're not living hand-to-mouth. It's selfish to think that acting on climate change can be rolled out over many decades so as not to upset the corporate donors of your favorite politicians. It is the height of entitlement to close the door to progressives inside the Democratic Party and then throw a shit fit when they vote for another party. It is hypocritical to hyperventilate about election-rigging Russians while secretly and then openly rigging primaries against progressives. Supporting the continued existence of a fake two-party system which advances exploitative agendas hurts the most vulnerable populations in America and in the entire world. Acting self-righteous because you actively support that system while spitting on the people who are trying to change it is selfish, is stupid, is hypocritical, 
and is a mark of extreme privilege. Next up is a piece published at writersrebel.com. This is Iggy Fox's defense statement. The wildlife biologist and campaigner Raphael Coleman, known in Extinction Rebellion as Iggy Fox, joined Extinction Rebellion as part of the media and messaging team in 2018. He was active in Extinction Rebellion Youth, a beloved member of the Snowflakes Affinity Group, and the force behind Extinction Rebellion's iconic Paint the Streets campaigns. When still a zoology student, he set up the nonprofit organization The Wild Work, a flourishing global network of wildlife and wilderness workers committed to conserving wild species and their habitats. On 6th February 2020, Fox collapsed during a run and died as a result of an undetected heart condition. His championing of wildlife and wilderness ecosystems remains an inspiration to many in and out of Extinction Rebellion. He was 25 years old. At the time of his death, Fox and others from the Snowflakes Affinity Group were due to stand trial for vandalizing the Brazilian embassy in London. The case has been postponed until next year due to COVID. This is an edited version of the defense speech he planned to give in court. I did splatter red paint, stick messages, and spray stenciled slogans of dissent on the Embassy of Brazil in London on August 13th, 2019. I have no intention of denying that or trying to convince you otherwise. So I have to plead not guilty not because I'm trying to convince you that I didn't do it, or that there is no case to answer. There is a very important case to answer, and great crimes have been committed. But I will state for the record that the case of Regina versus Barnard and others for criminal damage at the Brazilian embassy is the wrong case to answer. If you'll humor me, I want you to imagine for the rest of the case that in fact our roles have been reversed. We the defendants are in fact the prosecutors. And the prosecution, in fact, represents the defense for the Brazilian government, who are accused of the following crimes and breaches of peace and law. Criminal damage to indigenous homes and villages. Arson or destruction by fire of indigenous lands. Ecocide or the mass destruction of the environment on which humans and other species depend for survival criminal neglect of their duties to protect Brazil's people, such as in their inaction during the oil spill crises on Brazil's northeastern coast. Hate speech directed towards marginalized communities such as the indigenous, black, and LGBTQ+. Breaches of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And finally, inciting genocide of Brazil's indigenous peoples, a crime against humanity under the Rome Statute. In other words, instead of the case laid before you, I'm asking you to consider whether the Brazilian state is in fact guilty of the crimes I have just listed. If you find that to be true, it follows that we are not guilty of criminal damage having a lawful excuse to this charge by virtue of acting to prevent the greater crimes committed by Brazil's government.
You may see this as a tall order, seeing as I am no lawyer. But with the knowledge I have of the situation, I consider it my civic duty to lay the evidence of these crimes before you, and allow the jury to come to their own conclusions. Your decisions as an impartial court of law with an independent jury, and their reporting in the media, may well influence the criminal cases of senior Brazilian government's officials. This is no accident or coincidence. Brazil's Minister for the Environment, already a convicted fraudster, is facing impeachment on several charges. The current president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, has been previously fined for environmental misdemeanors. In a case brought by Brazilian lawyers to the International Criminal Court in The Hague, Bolsonaro is now set to stand trial for ecocide and inciting genocide. Bolsonaro has refused to attend the trial. I see it as no unfair advantage to conduct one in his absence today. Who am I to speak and act like this? A fair question. To most people in the rebellion, I am known as Iggy Fox, a pseudonym which I have used to avoid media inquiring invasively into my personal or professional life. My legal name is Raphael Coleman, and I was born and raised in London. I have mixed European origins, although our knowledge of my family history is limited, and we don't talk about it much. We know it's a story of many movements, often survivors fleeing from violence. My grandfather originally came to this country as an illegal immigrant from the Czechoslovakia during the Second World War. He was one of two survivors from a family of nine. The remaining seven died in Nazi concentration camps. Many other branches of my family tree were affected or cut off as a result of prejudice or fascism, although just how badly or how many we'll never fully know. I am a wildlife biologist and science communicator. I specialize in tropical animal conservation, and much of my work is conducted in the field, or what you might call ground zero. I've lived and worked and traveled for over two and a half years in Latin America, a continent I fell in love with for its people, landscapes, and wildlife. During that time, I've often worked in or explored the continent's wild places alongside indigenous people of several different ethnicities and cultures, especially in Ecuador, Mexico, Bolivia, and briefly in Brazil. Why I joined the rebellion As scientists, we are taught to be impartial. Our job is to observe reality, collect the data, analyze the results, and report the facts. To tell the cold, hard, mathematical truth. But what do you do when that truth is so horrific it keeps you awake at night? What do you do when the results of observed reality are so inhumane that your inaction becomes a moral wrong? Increasingly, there's an expression used to describe scientists who continue to passively monitor and observe as our civilization falls apart around us. We call them scribes of the apocalypse, the people who watch and take notes as the world burns. In October 2018, I was still applying for field research and media jobs, fighting up to 120 other applicants for a paid position in an underfunded field, when the words Extinction Rebellion caught my ear. They were published in the blog of a journalist and ex-ecologist whose work I greatly respect, George Monbiot. 
The word, the word extinction is somewhat like a trigger for conservation biologists. It's what we spend our entire lives fighting. I was attracted to a demonstration called the Declaration of Rebellion, where Monbiot spoke passionately about a brighter future for our planet. Alongside him, a small 15-year-old Swedish girl I had never seen before spoke with startling simplicity and clarity about the science of climate breakdown. I later found out her name, Greta Thunberg. I listened as hundreds of people repeated the words of a strange document in front of Parliament, the Declaration, which spoke of a grassroots rebellion against governments founded on the science I study to prevent an apocalypse an apocalyptic future in the face of our dire predicament. In it were the following words. When government and the law fail to provide any assurance of adequate protection, as well as security for its people's well-being and the nation's future, it becomes the right of its citizens to seek redress. It becomes not only our right, it becomes our sacred duty to rebel. Little did I know that later on, I would be the one speaking those words out to thousands of people and asking them to repeat them with me. Someone took my email, and the following week, I met the man who wrote those words, who now stands trial in the same court for criminal damage at the Shell headquarters. He and others, who I later came to trust as friends and colleagues, trained me in a strange thing called nonviolent direct action found out it involved peacefully breaking the law, where all other traditional methods of achieving change had failed, petitions, marches, lobbying, and all the work I'd participated in before. There I met Barbara, alongside several others, who were willing to do whatever possible, including risking their liberty to stand up for our futures. Together, we formed an affinity group, which someone jokingly called the Snowflakes. As we talked, I was nervous about breaking the law, worried and not yet ready to make that commitment myself. I agreed I could support them, but only as a non-arrestable, bringing food or blankets, providing first aid, or taking photos. At the time, I gave every excuse I could think of not to be arrested. I said because I often work with under-18s in environmental education, a criminal record could end that part of my career. But neither could I look those young people in the face and teach them about sustainability, knowing plainly that with no power to vote or influence in the world, we had no way of making our leaders listen. I said I couldn't pay court costs on my non-existent fieldwork salary, which usually consists of room and board at best. But the indigenous communities and frontline reserves I worked with, I knew my colleagues standing up against ecocide, often paid with their lives. I argued that to uphold my reputation as a scientist, I certainly didn't want my name and face all over the papers as some kind of criminal political activist. But the truth was that scientists were increasingly taking to the streets and even risking arrest to make their point where talking to the media and the government had failed. For many months, I said no. It wasn't worth it. The law-breaking should be left to someone else. But I did start volunteering with the rebellion more often. As part of the media team, I found that suddenly I could help communicate the science to thousands of people, 
whereas before the press and public never heard what we field workers had to say. I realized my voice was quickly becoming more influential as an activist than it ever had been as a scientist. Soon I stopped working on my research or even applying for field jobs. Why I felt forced to take action. What really changed my mind was hearing from indigenous communities and independent reporters on social media what was happening in the Brazilian Amazon when Bolsonaro came to power in January 2018. He wasted no time. Immediately, he began dismantling the state ministries and bodies charged with the human rights protections of indigenous people, all the while continuing to spew a rhetoric of hate and belittlement towards marginalized groups. He continued to encourage deforestation and clearing of land in wildernesses, argued the indigenous had too much land and should be culturally assimilated. He solidified the culture of impunity for racial violence and environmental crimes, denying evidence of indigenous murders, and advocating for the legalization of destructive practices such as wildcat mining. Ladies and gentlemen, make no mistake. This is what fascism looks like. In indigenous communities, there was rage, fear, desperation. And in the face of it all, defiance. With just a little research, videos kept surfacing on social media of indigenous activists and leaders putting out passionate cries for help where their government and corrupt press had failed them. They called out for international support. Media coverage, protests, boycotts, actions, any kind of support they could muster. Yet in the mainstream media in Brazil and Europe, the silence was deafening. People question, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? Perhaps we should ask instead, if a gunshot rings out in the Amazon, but no witnesses or camera is there to tell the tale, will anyone but the murderer hear the tribesmen scream? These people are neither stupid nor are they savages. They know exactly what happens when men with guns enter their lands in search of money. It's been happening to them for over 500 years, since South America was first colonized. Genocide Isolated tribes contacted without their consent and then wiped out. Hundreds, thousands, millions dead from diseases which they have no immunity to. And whomever the illness didn't kill, the white man would invade, dominate, evangelize, and decimate for their homelands and the riches they could extract from them. In this country, remembering the Second World War and its horrors, we respond with two simple words. Never again. Those words come from our very bones and we mean it. People who have suffered under authoritarian, racist, and fascist ideologies recognize them emerging because they can never forget. Forgetting risks history repeating itself. And history has shown us what comes next when leaders like Bolsonaro begin assaults on human rights and advocate for, quote, sovereignty over the lands of others. A prettily spun world word for what is undeniably an invasion leading to genocide. 
Sure enough, racial violence increased, deforestation skyrocketed, and in an unexpected turn of events, Bolsonaro's supporters set out in their thousands to torch the Amazon on a scale unlike any seen in previous years. With this in mind, I knew the consequences, cost, and impact of the damage caused any action we took would be dwarfed by the already existing and still-to-come consequences of the damage and violence occurring in Brazil. During the fire in Lon of London, citizens were recorded to have been forced to destroy the houses of neighbors on their street to prevent the spread of the fire, limiting the damage. The concept is centuries old and is often referred to as acting to prevent a greater harm. We acted to prevent the spread of a fire, both real and ideological, in the public interest of the entire planet's inhabitants, human and otherwise. The Brazilian state is indeed not the house between the fire and the population. It is in itself match, lighter, fluid, fuel, and igniter. The state is stoking the flames of hate, destruction, violence, and genocide. Flames we sought to extinguish with our paint. Some may argue government officials are not to blame. But you would not say that Hitler or his generals were not war criminals just because you could not prove they turned the gas valves themselves in the concentration camps in which my family suffered during the Second World War. We should never forget that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was, quote, legal, and everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. Even so, I am sure that had I lived in Germany at the time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers. If today I lived in a communist country where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed, I would openly advocate disobeying that country's anti-religious laws. Back then, in Nazi-occupied territories, war crimes were considered illegal. Resistance to Nazism, fascism, racism, violence, and genocide was criminalized and punishable by death. But good people broke those laws and risked everything anyway. It would be absurd to argue that those who resisted or escaped these moral crimes were themselves immoral criminals, simply because their actions were often illegal. Their morality and conscience propelled them to use any means at their disposal, even if it was against the law. Theft and sabotage of military equipment, hiding Jewish fugitives, assisting their escapes and border crossings. They acted out of conscience and broke laws to protect themselves, their countries, communities, friends, and fellow human beings from a greater evil, Nazism. As the grandchild of a Holocaust survivor, I exist because of said resistance to fascism. The majority of my grandfather's family died in concentration camps as he escaped Czechoslovakia and fled to London. He, and by extension I, won the privilege of survival where others were not so lucky. To stand now by while people are violently exterminated by the same ideologies that murdered my family would not only be an insult to my ancestors, but a moral abdication of my responsibility as a human being. In other words, I could not live with myself knowing I am alive because people stood up for my kind, while they die 
because no one stood up for theirs. In this moment, I invoke Article 9, our right to freedom of conscience, won by the conscientious objectors who refused to go to war in order to kill other human beings. I felt compelled by special circumstances as an individual to do all in my power to oppose and prevent the greater crimes of genocide and ecocide. I made a conscious, informed, careful, reasonable act of conscience. But it was also a crime of passion, motivated by love, rage, compassion, and grief for the destruction being wrought in Brazil. And finally, a piece from 10fortjustice.com. These are 10 Demands for Justice. Demands to set the stage for full abolition. 1. Defund the police and reallocate resources to impacted communities. Reject any proposed police department budget expansion and implement the highest possible budget cuts every year until the budget is reduced to zero. Cut all police salaries until they are reduced to zero. Institute a freeze on all new hires. End all new investments in police training and facility renovations. Completely remove funding for public relations. Eliminate paid administrative leave. Eliminate for-profit policing, including all quotas, fines, pay-based arrests, and civil asset forfeitures. End all police contracts with government and non-government agencies providing social services. Repeal the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights. Abolish all police unions and immediately strip their power by making all police union negotiations public. Demanding the AFL-CIO denounce police unions and prohibiting political candidates from accepting police union donations. Reallocate all existing police department funds to communities of color. First Nations, and socioeconomically disadvantaged communities for schools, public health, social services, and other needs as determined by these communities. 2. Demilitarize the police. Disarm all law enforcement, including police officers and security guards, starting immediately with all military-grade weaponry and equipment Enforce abuse of force laws. Make all body and dash cam footage public. End the federal 1033 program that provides military weaponry to local police departments. Pass H.R. 1714, the Stop Militarizing Law Enforcement Act. Require all burn grants to be used for non-carceral alternatives to incarceration instead of police department militarization. End all grants from the Department of Homeland Security, Joint Terrorism Task Force, FBI, and Federal Justice Department. End all Pentagon giveaway defense appropriations. End all militarized international police training exchange programs. Cancel all police and government contracts with private and public institutions that develop surveillance technologies. Establish national, state, and local legal restrictions to prevent police departments from purchasing or using military weaponry. 3. Eliminate discriminatory policing, prosecution, and sentencing. 
repeal the 1994 Crime Act, abolish Public Law 280, transfer authority directly to First Nations, and mandate that any criminal infraction on Indigenous lands be subject to sovereign nation laws, regardless if the individual is a member of the Indigenous sovereign nations. End broken windows policing, stop and frisk, racial profiling, repeat offender policing, gang policing, drunk driving checkpoints, neighborhood policing, immigration paperwork requests, and all other racially biased practices. Decriminalize poverty by repealing all laws related to the street economy, for example, sex work or drug trades, and the occupation of public space, for example, panhandling, or public urination. End mandatory arrest and failure to protect laws that lead to the criminalization of survivors of gendered violence. End all fines and fees associated with the criminal legal process, including ticketing, cash bail, court costs, and parole and probation fees. Implement stringent limitations on the number of cases managed by public defenders. Limit prosecutorial discretion and end prosecutor immunity. Immediately remove all law and oath-breaking judges. Document and publicly report racial and economic disparities on a court-by-court and judge-by-judge basis. Number four, institute complete law enforcement transparency and accountability. Create an independent national database of police crimes, brutality, and misconduct. Implement independent community-led police department reviews and data audits. Require public reporting of all police records and schedules. Immediately terminate and eliminate pensions of any officer found guilty of manipulating data, covering their badge, turning off their body or dash cam, or illegally stopping a citizen from filming. Number five. Independently investigate all police crimes and abuses of power. End qualified immunity. Establish an independent national review board along with community-level oversight committees to investigate all police officers or police department employees who have been involved in or witness to any police-related crimes. All police officers, police department employees, police union official members, and individuals with any relationship to any police department are prohibited from participation, and anyone with any conflict of interest must recuse recuse themselves or face civil penalties. Implement immediate termination of any officer found guilty through independent investigation and require that officer participate in a pre-established program of reparative justice. Mandate that any police-related crime against any member of a First Nation be addressed according to Indigenous Sovereignty Nation laws. Indigenous Sovereign Nation laws. Require all costs of police-related lawsuits be covered by officer pensions and or personal liability insurance. Create a legal fund for victims of police brutality. Immediately dismantle any police department that violates civil rights. Number six, install community representation, oversight, and safety measures. Elect independent community councils for needs assessment, municipal decision-making, and oversight, prioritizing representation by marginalized groups, 
invest in community-based public safety measures, including peacekeepers and wellness checks, intervention, violence prevention, skills-based education, mental health services, substance abuse treatment, mutual aid, mediation, and reparative justice. Mandate state-level monitoring for proper checks and balances. Number seven, end strategic counter-protest violence. Repeal all anti-protest laws. Terminate all officers guilty of arresting or applying unnecessary and excessive force against protesters for violation of their civil rights as guaranteed by the First Amendment. Ban the use of tear gas, pepper spray, rubber bullets, and all other crowd dispersal methods. Strip police authority to issue dispersal orders. Expunge all protest-related convictions and free all protesters in jail or prison. Number eight, apologize and provide reparations. Apologize publicly and provide indemnification to victims of police violence and racial discrimination in policing, prosecution, and sentencing. Pass the Commission to Study Reparations Act H.R. 40 and S. 1083. Mandate Congress implement and enact the recommended reparation proposals within 120 days of the submission of the Commission's report and immediately begin reparation disbursements to improve the lives of African descendants in the United States and to foster economic, social, and political parity. Invest in equitable opportunities for First Nations and provide reparations to all descendants of Indigenous peoples of America. Recognize all First Nations and honor in perpetuity all treaties, including those not ratified, as well as obligations to support self-determination and return stolen land. Issue and read a formal apology to the Black Americans and Indigenous peoples. Implement comprehensive factual and unabridged social studies pertaining to Black Americans and Indigenous peoples as part of the national curriculum to combat their erasure foster compassion, and shift the paradigm of systemic racism and implicit bias. Number nine, end the war on drugs. End the criminalization of drug use and drug addiction. Pass the CARE Act of 2019. Expunge all nonviolent drug-related convictions and in lieu of arrest, provide mental health, behavioral health, and addiction recovery services nationwide on indigenous lands, provide resources for those services to be overseen by First Nations and implemented at the discretion of each sovereign indigenous nation. Legalize marijuana at the federal and state levels and respect the sovereignty of First Nations that jurisdictionally protects all 573 recognized nations from any federal or state penalty for the cultivation of marijuana. Pass the Marijuana Business Access to Banking Act of 2015 and invest state and federal revenue from legal marijuana into communities most impacted by the war on drugs. Number 10. End Carceral Punishment Free everyone in jails, prisons, youth facilities, and detention centers, beginning immediately with the elderly, disabled, and immunocompromised Nonviolent offenders, undocumented immigrants, criminalized survivors, and those held on bail or for parole violations. 
free all political prisoners, including Leonard Peltier and Mamiya Abu-Jamal. Remove, quote, except as a punishment for crime from the 13th Amendment. Ban solitary confinement. Decriminalize misdemeanor offenses and probation parole violations. Repeal all three strikes and habitual offender laws. Ban the box. End the school-to-prison pipeline, repealing truancy laws, removing police, surveillance technologies, and metal detectors from schools, and eliminating school zero-tolerance disciplinary policies, suspensions, and expulsions. Close all local jails. Eliminate the prison industrial complex, closing all privately owned prisons, terminating all contracts with private companies that profit off prisons, and banning all police foundations. End all new prison construction. End pretrial detention. Cut funding to prosecutors' offices. Abolish ICE. End immigration detention. And mandate legal immigration status priority to ICE detainees and their families. Eliminate civil commitment. Eliminate all carceral alternatives to incarceration. And implement measures for intervention, prevention, and education. Abolish the death penalty. Implement a reparative, transformative justice model in place of the current system. And those are the Ten Demands for Justice. Uh, Ten Demands for Justice you can find at tenforjustice.com. Ten Demands for Justice envisions a new society in which prisons and police are no longer necessary and communities are equipped to provide for their own health and safety. Ten Demands for Justice offers a roadmap for the defunding and then full abolition of police and prisons, beginning with immediate actions to end police violence, as well as racism and classism in policing, prosecution, and sentencing. And that'll wrap up this episode of Howie 2020. Remember, you can check out all the back episodes of Howie 2020 and the back episodes of Bernie 2020 at bernie-2020.com. You can hear these episodes playing 24-7 along with my other podcasts at movingtrainradio.com or on Twitch TV slash movingtrainradio. Here is Saul Williams with the song List of Demands. Thanks for listening.
ecstasy suffering, echinacea buffering. We aim to remember what we choose to forget. God's just a baby, and a diaper is wet. Call the police! 